Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. F- so the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It runs cleaner than any baseball business. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passport Radio Network. Always appreciate you guys joining me. Bunch of stuff to get into today. Of course, a reminder, anything I talk about, you want to keep the discussion interactive with me, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And don't forget, you know, download the MTR Radio mobile apps on the iPhone and Android device. And, you know, take us with you. And, uh, you know, a lot of stuff to get into. And another somber note to start today with is we find out that, you know, last week, of course, a couple weeks ago, we find out that Ed Herman passed away. And this time we find out that longtime Orioles outfielder and one-time Yankee outfielder Paul Blair passes away at the age of 69. And an unfortunate situation there as you look, a guy who had a very good career and, you know, ended up uh, obviously becoming the premier defensive center fielder throughout his career, which spanned mostly with the Baltimore Orioles and, of course, played with the Orioles from 1964 until 1976 and was with the Yankees from 77 to 79 and then with, with the Reds briefly in 79 and then back to the Yankees for a couple of games in 1980. But, you know, a guy who won the gold glove sevens, eight times in his career, phenomenal defensive center fielder and really was the best defensively at his position. And, you know, it was certainly part of the Orioles team of 71, which ends up going out there, winning the AL pennant, and, of course, losing to the Pittsburgh Pirates in the World Series. But, you know, it was part of some other teams, the 1970 team, which won the World Series. And, you know, many times in the playoffs in 66, 69, 70, 71, 73, 74, and then with the Yankees in 77 and 78, of course, when they won the World Series. But, you know, a guy who played some very, very good defense and, you know, it was a guy that, you know, you, you, know you, you looked at and was a constant for those Oriole teams. And, you know, I, I got a chance. I didn't get a chance to speak with him, but I got a chance to, uh, to, to be at an event in which he was there, of course, signing baseball cards and stuff like that. And you, you really find very few that had uh, many, many things to say in regards to Paul Blair that weren't positive. And you know, a guy that certainly had a very good career, a lot, a lot of postseason games. And, you know, the Yankees ended up bringing him over after the 1976 season where he ends up coming to the Yankees in a trade for Rick Blatt and Elliott Maddox. 
And he, of course, is part of the Yankee teams in 77 and 78 to win the World Series. Part of three World Series championships that he ends up winning. Part of six World Series. And he was, you know, of course, with the Orioles in 1966 when they lost to the Dodgers in the World Series. 1969 when they lost to the Mets in the World Series. And like I mentioned before, 1971 when the Pittsburgh Pirates beat him. But certainly a guy that absolutely put up good numbers in regards to hitting as well. And you look at some of his postseason numbers, a 260 hitter in 52 postseason games. And, of course, that includes uh, seven ALCSs and six World Series. He was also part of the 1973 and 1974 uh, Oriole teams that made the playoffs but, of course, didn't get past the, the ALCS. And obviously that was when the Oakland Athletics were unstoppable and those teams of 72, 73, and 74 when they won those consecutive World Series. But Paul Blair, obviously, if you, you, you look at him, I mean, he put up, like I said, some good numbers in the postseason, respectable, obviously made up for anything that he didn't give you offensively with his defense. But 1969, he had 26 home runs, which turned out to be a career high for a guy that only had 134 in his entire career. And obviously, some of the game, some of the seasons later on in his career, '76 with the Orioles, where he kind of was not an everyday player, played in 145 games, but saw his average dip from 218 in '75 to 197 in '76, and then you know pretty much was just a defensive outfielder for the Yankees in '77 and '78. And one of the moments that Paul Blair is known for was something that he obviously had nothing to do with. This wasn't something that he did, but this had to do with the feud between. Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson with the New York Yankees. And, of course, the time that Billy Martin pulled Reggie Jackson out of a game because he felt like he was loafing after a ball, he sent Paul Blair in to play right field to replace him. And that obviously led to the confrontation in the dugout. And Paul Blair just you know, simply just went out to take his position. But that's something that he's always going to be remembered for by Yankee fans. But, listen, you got to look at the guy. I mean, he was a winner. He was part of two World Series championship teams with the Yankees another one with the Orioles, and like I said, he played in six World Series, had some pretty good offensive seasons. Probably his best offensive season was the one I mentioned before in 1969 where he hit 285 with 26 home runs, and then a couple of years later he would end up hitting 280 with 10 homers, 64 RBIs. A guy that ran the bases well. He had 171 stolen bases in his career, but wasn't known as really that all-star type of outfielder. And, you know, a guy made twice to the all-star team in the American League, but uh, a guy that's certainly not a Hall of Fame player by any stretch of the imagination, but for those who got a chance to see Paul Blair in the late 60s and for the better part of the 70s, you knew the guy was a glider. The guy could play center field as good as anybody at the time and you know, hit good enough to be run out there every day and trusted. And you know, anybody that goes out there and wins eight gold gloves over the course of their career in eight and nine years from 67 until 1975 uh, you know, really needs no explanation. And, you know, sad to see the guy goes, obviously, a little early, age of 69. And, you know, another ironic thing, and I, met, I touched on this last week when we were talking about Ed Herman, the guy I remember seeing this summer. And, you know, during the summer, he seemed healthy. And, obviously, rest in peace to Paul Blair and best wishes out to his family and stuff like that. But, you know, some stuff we're going to get into in regards to baseball going on right now. Of course, you had the posting of Masahiro Tanaka, who's going to be available as a free agent for the next 30 days, really for the better part of January. And that gives a bunch of teams the opportunity to go out there and make their offer and, you know, put the $20 million down, which is the posting fee, which we've discussed before. But, you know, looking at looking at it like this, obviously you know that the Yankees 
are considered the favorites, and they were considered probably more the favorites before the posting system got changed. And now that it's switched to $20 million flat fee for whatever team wants to bid on them, that's going to allow a lot more teams to be interested. And it's not just going to be the Yankees and the Dodgers and you know the high-spending teams, but teams that may not consider themselves high spenders are going to get in this. And one team that I'm certainly going to say is going to have an extremely good chance of landing is the Chicago Cubs. And it has been well publicized about the affection, the feelings that Jed Hoyer and Theo Epstein have for Tanaka. And they've followed him back to their time, both when they were with the Red Sox. And of course, Hoyer ended up going to San Diego before the two of them ended up going to Chicago with Epstein as the vice president and Hoyer as the general manager. And they, they've had an interest in this guy. And it, it, the fact that the $20 million, the flat fee, may put this a little more in the Cubs' favor. Because you look at what's happened over the last couple seasons, they've done a lot in regards to dropping payroll and doing a lot in regards to rebuilding. But what has happened is this team does have the ability to spend. And it's a matter of what they want to spend it on. They've you know, gone out into the international market. They got they got Baez, who's a, a shortstop, who certainly can make an impact at the major league level. And you know about drafting Chris Bryant last year. But when it comes down to spending, if they have to go out there and spend a you know $100 million to get Tanaka, I think they're going to be willing to do that. And that's going to make it tougher on a team like the Yankees or tougher on a team like the Los Angeles Angels or the Los Angeles Dodgers or even the Arizona Diamondbacks, who I think are going to make a legitimate effort. But I think maybe they top out at like 80 or 90 million and see the stakes as they've been raised so high may just kind of back off a little bit. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how much the Chicago Cubs pursue Tanaka, because if they go out there and spend 100 million or offer 100 million to 120 or maybe even go to 140 million, which it possibly could take that much to get this pitcher. What do the Yankees do? Because the Yankees have obviously waited in regards to addressing their starting pitching needs on the posting of this player from Japan. And if, and if the stakes get up to a point where there are $120 million or more, the Yankees, who have been known as that team that's going to be able to outspend everybody and anybody in any given situation, are really going to have to think whether or not they want to go through with it and put the type of offer out there that it's going to take to get this pitcher because they're not competing against themselves. They may have been competing against themselves when they're talking about just putting the posting fee up there. The straight posting fee, if they went out there and wanted to give the Rattuchin Golden Eagles $100 million just for the rights to speak with him, then they would get that. They would get the exclusive rights, the opportunity to just speak with him with no other teams involved. Now it's going to be $20 million, which obviously the Yankees are going to put out. I would expect to see the Cubs to put it out. I would expect to see the Angels and the Dodgers and the Seattle Mariners and the Arizona Diamondbacks and probably about five or six other teams that we're not even thinking about that are going to just get the opportunity to talk with him and try to negotiate a contract. And in the end, it's going to come down to the highest contract offer, not the highest bid. And this is what is going to make it interesting. I think the Cubs have a little bit deeper pockets than some people think. And especially if you follow what's happened over the last couple seasons, you'll know that the Cubs, you know, seem to be kind of a small market team now. But let's not forget that it wasn't that long ago they had guys like Alfonso Soriano. And it wasn't a big deal to see them spend that much money. And obviously, Theo Epstein has had the reputation of giving out contracts. Think about some of the guys that he's paid over the years, whether it's Manny Ramirez or David Ortiz or some of the pitchers. And obviously, Dice K comes to mind. And I think he certainly views Tanaka as a better version of Dice K. And, you know, in regards to the way it's going to turn out, I think 
you know, Tanaka, one, you know, obviously you look at the way things are set up in Japan and pitchers come over to the United States. There's always going to be a mixed group of results. I mean, if you want to think about Kayagawa, to me, Kayagawa doesn't count. I mean, he is a guy that, you know, never really established himself in the major leagues. And, you know, this was a situation where I think, uh, you know, he, he is kind of the worst case scenario. But Dice K was good until he got hurt. He put up two very good seasons, helped the Red Sox win a World Series title. You Darvish is probably the best pitcher that's ever going to come out of that country. And I don't think to compare any pitcher to him wouldn't be fair to that pitcher or to you Darvish. So you got to understand that Masahiro Tanaka is not going to be you Darvish and probably isn't going to be anywhere close to what you Darvish has done for the Texas Rangers over the last couple of seasons. That being said, this guy could still be a very good pitcher. The thing is, he's going to get paid a lot more than you Darvish. And if the Cubs are going to go out there and be that aggressive team and going to give that contract the offer of around $120 million, then it puts the onus on the New York Yankees over whether or not they want to top it and overpay to an extent where probably they didn't even want to or simply move on to the other candidates that are out there. And there are a lot of pitchers that are still out there, the big guys in regards to Matt Garza, Ubaldo Jimenez, Irvin Santana, Bronson Arroyo, even A.J. Burnett is still out there, which obviously a reunion with the Yankees would seem very unlikely. But you know, the Yankees may decide to go in a different direction. And if the stakes get too high, I wouldn't be surprised to see the New York Yankees, the team that has always been known to get their guy when they want to get their guy, be the ones to back out in a situation like this and let it kind of go. And maybe let them go to an aggressive team like the Chicago Cubs and say, listen, if you're going to pay that much money for him, maybe you could have him. And is he going to be a $120 million pitcher? I don't think so. But he can be an all-star. Uh, one thing that some people have brought up to me is the fact that the mound in Japan is 30 inches high. And the mound in Major League Baseball prior to 1969 was 15 inches high. And it got dropped to 10 inches. So you're talking a 20-inch difference from where, where Tanaka was pitching off of last year to the mound that he's going to be pitching on in Major League Baseball. And obviously you got better hitters in baseball than you do in Japan. But Here's a guy that I think is going to transform into a, a pitcher in the major leagues, which is going to be a little bit different than from what he's been pitching in Japan. But when he say, is he worth $120 million over a six-year deal or something even more than that, I think it's fair to say that he's not going to give you 100% of that value. And that's why the Yankees, I think, are going to look at this cautious and say, hey, if we can get him for around $100 million, which we, as we think is going to be enough to get him, then I think the Yankees are going to go for it. That's the guy that they want. It's the top pitcher that they feel in all free agency. And I think he is a little bit better or has the potential to be a little bit better than Matt Garza or Robaldo Jimenez. But if it doesn't work out and a team like the Cubs goes out, goes out there and bids so much for him, I actually think the Cubs are the favorite to land him. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me because they say, hey, the Yankees haven't made any moves to address their starting pitching and have been solely waiting for the market to develop and the posting system and everything to be set up to where Tanaka was a free agent because that's the guy they wanted. But in other circumstances, you could say when the Yankees have wanted somebody, they've gone out there and they've gotten them. I don't think it's a guarantee here. I really don't. Now, is it likely the Yankees will get them? Certainly, I think that they're in the top two or three. And I don't think anybody's going to go nuts over it if the Yankees do sign him because I think that's a place where he's expected to go. But the Yankees are going to have to proceed with caution here. I mean, are they going to pay 130 to $140 million you know, just to get the guy? I don't, I don't know if they're going to do that. I think they may decide to think about a Garza or a Santana or a Jimenez or an Arroyo and maybe bring in a pitcher like that, maybe one or two of them, and decide that, hey, the commitment – 
for a pitcher that's probably not going to give you $130 million worth of performance over the next six seasons may not be the best move to make. Now, does he come over here and be an ace or be a number two with the Yankees and help them win a World Series in 2014? If he does, obviously it makes the investment wise. And I don't think the Yankees are worried about the amount of money that it's going to take to get him. But where is the cutoff? I'm saying it's probably over $100 million. It's $110 to $120 million. If there's another team offering that amount of money, then I think the Yankees are going to start thinking about whether or not they want to go forward and make this move. And for, you know, to the top off the offseason, which got them Brian McCann and got them Jacoby Ellsbury and got them Carlos Beltran, to top it off with a Tanaka you know, price of six years and $140 million, I, I just don't think it's feasible, even for the New York Yankees. And if the Chicago Cubs want to be the aggressive team and put the most money out there and say, listen, we have the top offer, we have the top offer, listen, Tanaka is going to go where the money is the most, unless for some reason he doesn't want to play in Chicago, unless he just wants to be on the West Coast, or unless he's like a lot of the other Japanese players that simply want to be a Yankee. And I think the Yankees you know, obviously have that brand to it that attracts people. It's attracted Carlos Beltran his whole life. He almost left the offer that Omar Minaya gave him with the New York Mets on the table to take a lesser deal with the Yankees. We understand that. We understand the 27 championships, the Yankee brand does mean a lot. And it does impact players on the international market like Japanese players and stuff like that. So maybe Tanaka just wants to be a Yankee. Maybe he's, uh, he, he says, hey, just write a check. Whatever you want to pay me, I'll take. I'm not going to go negotiate with any other team. I don't think it's going to work out that way. I think you know, Masahiro Tanaka is just like any other free agent, not only in Major League Baseball but the entire world. He's going to go where the most money is. And, you know, it would be foolish to say anything different. He is not going to leave $20 million on the table or $30 million on the table to take an offer with the New York Yankees. And I think the Yankees have to understand that. You know that the brand is involved, but he's not going to take a lesser deal. He's going to go where the most money is. And if the Cubs are giving the most money, he's going to go to the Chicago Cubs. And if the New York Yankees aren't willing to match it or, you know, you know raise the the level is a little bit above that, then he is not going to be a New York Yankee. And I, I think the Yankees are going to be in a tough situation. Like I said, they're going to have to decide whether they want to pay more or overpay more to get a pitcher that they want or just simply just go in there and take, uh, let's say, a Garza or a Santana. Like I think would, may end up being a better fit if Tanaka ends up going elsewhere. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Lots more stuff to get into. We're going to take a break. Be back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. I always wanted to work in sports, kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one. How to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting 
going into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's, it's The good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We've placed thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or visit GoCSB.com. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm going to segue into an interview that I recorded this past week with former Major League infielder Vance Law. And Vance's father, Vern Law, was a longtime pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 50s and the 60s. And Vance ends up coming up. He gets drafted by the Pirates and plays a couple seasons there before playing a couple of years with the Chicago White Sox. Then eventually to the Montreal Expos and the Chicago Cubs, and then spends a season in Japan before hanging it up for good. I think he came back another year with the Oakland Athletics, but here's a guy that certainly had a long career. He ended up making a postseason with the Cubs in 1989, was a 1988 All-Star, and ended up pitching in seven games in his career, kind of just keeping a, you know the solid arm just like his father had. He was able to pitch and mop up duty seven times, three times in two consecutive seasons, and another time with the Oakland Athletics. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League third baseman Vance Law. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League infielder Vance Law. Vance, for thanks for having a couple minutes today. Hey Vince, before we get into your playing career, of course, you know, your father Vern was a you know a very good pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates for several years. Tell us a little bit about growing up, you know, having a father that was such a successful pitcher. Well, we did a lot of traveling back then. We we uh, had our home in Idaho and we traveled from there to spring training at Fort Myers, Florida where the pirates trained and when spring training was over we drove back to Idaho. Which was about a four or five day drive. I hadn't uh, been finished school and then we joined up with him again in Pittsburgh and spent the summer there. So I did that for about the first 12 years of my life or so and uh, would try to go to the ballpark with him. Uh, he would uh, allow a couple of, uh, of uh, us as boys. We have five boys in our family. We would go. Uh, to the ballpark, he'd take two or three of us at, uh, at a time, and uh, at the time we were able to go out and shag during the uh, during batting practice, as long as we stayed close to the outfield wall, uh, we were fine to do that, there wasn't any of the insurance liability that they have now, so it was a lot of fun, we enjoyed it, and uh, I was a huge Pirates fan back then, and and uh, still follow them a little bit now. No, absolutely, man. I'll tell you, when you're you know you're out there shagging balls, I mean, is there a certain age that you could, I don't know if you necessarily remember, but what was the, the youngest that you possibly were when you were out on the ball field? I would say, at least where he would let me go out on the outfield, uh, I would say probably 
trade for don't get in the outfielder's way when they're working. Uh, just get the balls that go through the wall and then throw them in. And uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. I I remember uh, being able to to uh, play uh, play pepper with Willie Stargell and Manny Sandin, and then you know, 15 years later they were uh, teammates of mine, which was kind of a uh, interesting experience for me as grow up having those guys be the players that I love to watch and then later being teammates with them. Nah, I'll tell you, that had to be outstanding. Once again, John Pielli here with Vance Law. You know, you end up, you know, as, as, you, as you grow up, you know, you, you know, your father is a very established pitcher in the big leagues. Did you did you kind of want to be a pitcher because your father was, or did you just let your you let your baseball talents just kind of get to their, where they were? Was it a preference that you have, would have preferred to pitch if you could? No, I, I, uh, wanted, I prefer playing every day, and uh, I just, I guess, you know, when I was young, I just kind of wanted to follow my dad's footsteps. I really enjoyed playing, and it was fun to be able to go to the ballpark, and I thought, wow, what a great way to make a living, and, uh, you know, I didn't know, I don't think any child knows what really the, the kind of hard work it takes to get to that point, but eventually, I think I just let the talents that I had uh, lead me in the direction it was. I, I did end up pitching in, I think, seven ball games in major leagues and blowout games where I got, I got an inning here. I mean, actually, I think I had two outings where I had two innings, so it was just to preserve our bullpen because we were in blowout games. Yeah, and it absolutely helps teams as they go go forward. You don't see as many pitchers nowadays get a chance to pitch in as many of those type of games. So, yeah, you obviously stand out from that perspective. But take us a little bit back to you know when you were drafted by the Pirates, because I'm sure you know as you were you know as you were playing you know you know high school and the college level, you know you you know you you know you felt the aspirations of wanting to make the big leagues. It had to feel a lot more special to be drafted by the same team that your father played for, right? Absolutely, yeah, I, they were my favorite team just because of my dad, and uh, I, I played four years of college baseball, and particularly my last year, I had a real good year, uh, and every tournament that we went to, was supposedly there were a lot of scouts, I played very well and made all tournament teams, and I was anticipating being drafted in the first, somewhere in the first day, uh, hopefully in the top ten rounds, and the first day passed by, and, I was very disappointed, and then the second day passed by, and I still wasn't called. And I uh, was even, you know, really more disappointed. And then finally, uh, you know, and it wasn't publicized like it is now. Back uh, in 1978, but I heard on the news. I was watching the news, you know, the third night, not thinking anything. I figured my chances were down, and uh, there was an announcement made in the sports set. Just grateful that I was given the opportunity to be able to, to have a chance. 
No, I tell you what stands out, man, and you know I've talked about this a lot of different times on this show is the difference within you know with the media, the way it's set up now, and you know the age of computers and social media. I mean, you know, you're 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 in a situation where they're still kind of behind in the technology, and really to be to be notified, you know, in regards to when you were drafted. I mean, were you were you actually notified before you saw, you know, you heard uh, you, you you were drafted on a newscast? That, that's when I found out. I was I found out on the newscast and uh, uh, didn't hear anything from the organization that night. It was 10:30 at night when I uh, about that time when I heard on the news. And uh, then the next day is when uh, I got a phone call from the minor league or from the farm director, Murray Cook. He called and said that he drafted drafted me. I, I later uh, had heard that they kind of just did it as a favor to my dad. Uh, I mistook that as my dad called him and said, why don't you give my son a chance, which didn't, which didn't happen, but uh, they just, uh, some of the scouts had said, hey, there's burn laws from out here that, uh, you know, I was having a good year, let's at least draft him as a, as a favor to Brian. So that's really how it, uh, I, I guess, how it first started. And then, uh, you know, and then I went, down to Bradenton and uh, played in one of the rookie league games. I worked there for the first five days where we worked out. Uh, we started the rookie league season. I played one and then I got called into the office and uh, they said, "Let's. Uh, I want to see if you can really play and we're going to send you up to high A ball in Salem, Virginia. So that's that's where I went. And I played a half season in Salem and had a real good year and I uh, was invited to major league spring training and uh, then that year I uh, I had another good year for that spring, and they sent me to Portland, Oregon, where I uh, uh, where it was AAA, and I uh, played a full year there. And then the next year, halfway through, I was called up for the big league. So I was very, very fortunate. I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the minor league. And, uh, was able to advance fairly quickly. Yeah, from that point, I mean, you have a, you have the opportunity to kind of establish yourself as you know Vance Law as opposed to Vern Law's son. And you spend a couple of years with the Pirates, and then you go over, you, you end up going to the Chicago White Sox. Tell us a little bit about 1983, because obviously the White Sox make the postseason that year. Um, you know, you get yourself to a point where you're you're playing just about every day. Tell us a little bit about the 1983 season and what it was like to be with the White Sox going to the playoffs. Well, first of all, I was traded from the, it was pretty tough to be traded from your childhood dream team, uh, and that happened in 82, and I uh, went over to the White Sox, and I was told then that, uh, you know, we plan on taking you to Chicago, so I knew I was going to Tennessee, which was a great thrill, uh, so it played out the 2 but in 83, uh, started the year, as this were started spring training is kind of the incumbent uh, uh, starting shortstop and about midway through we made a trade and uh, picked up uh, Scott Fletcher and Jerry Kuczynski and Tony uh, LaRusso asked me if I would move to third day so I said you know whatever you need me to do and so I'd never played third before and they moved me over to third base and I felt right at home there that was really a great transition for me, but that season started out, we are just kind of going so-so, we are playing about 500 baseball, and so about the start of June, and then we, we really took off, our pitching was uh, outstanding, we got the Cy Young Award winner, Lamar Hoyt, and 
Jensen, uh, Floyd Bannister, Richard Dobson, Jerry Kuzman was picked up, and uh, I tell you, we had a real strong pitching staff that uh, gave us a chance to win every game. And uh, they established, we went into uh, Texas, and Doug Rader, their manager, kind of came up with this role, and the White Sox don't do anything special. They just they kind of went ugly, meaning that we didn't. Uh, uh, we didn't score a ton of runs, but we executed very, very well. Uh, we might score a run or two early on just by, without even a base hit, by the walk, stolen base, move the runner side five, you know, we're ahead one nothing without really even a base hit. So we played very, very sound fundamental baseball and uh, really a great group of guys, uh, a great organization. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn had taken over the ball club, I think, in about 1980. And, uh, you know, they were putting together a pretty good, a pretty good organization. Picked up Brett Luzinski and uh, Carlton Fisk and some big trades uh, in the early 80s. And they uh, through their farm system and a couple of trades. Uh, and we, we became a pretty darn good team. Once again, John Piala here, a former Major League infielder, Vance Law. Now, of course, you know, playing for the White Sox, and then again in your last year with the Athletics, you had a chance to play, of course, for Tony LaRusso, like you just mentioned. And, of course, Tony LaRusso is getting inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame this year. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience playing for Tony and what you would say about him as a manager. Very, very, very well-prepared manager. He's, uh, you know, he, he knew the opposition really, really well, what they had in their bullpen. Uh, he became kind of one of the, he was probably the first guy that really started playing the right on, the right on the left and the left on the right. And uh, sometimes in the pain situation, uh, he played the odds very, very well. He uh, was a guy who would utilize everybody in the bullpen. Uh, they knew that everybody knew their role. Uh, guys on the bench knew their roles. Uh, you knew if uh, in a certain situation you and you were the extra man that you were going to pinch hit in this particular situation. You really had, uh, I think, the communication is probably one of the strong suits that I think that Tony had with all of his players is communication with knowing where, where you stood. Uh, he demanded that uh, players play the game the right way, meaning they run hard. Big guys made an effort to try and move runners. You know, you're not always going to be successful doing it, but you have to go up there with the idea. I'm not going to be a, you know, you can't be selfish for the RBI. It's more important to set your teammate up by hit the ball the other way, pass the runner from second to third. Uh, so I think that, you know, it, it was a pleasure to be able to play for him and certainly well deserving of this honor to go into the Hall of Fame. Uh, really a very, very great manager. No question about it. And I'll tell you, you know, you end up, uh, after that, playing a couple of years with the Expos. And then you end up playing for a pretty good team. And, you know, the Expos teams you played for weren't bad. They still had a lot of uh, a lot of very talented players. Of course, Gary Carter was traded the year that you came there, right, be, right before the season started. But they still, you know, they still had, you know, Tim Raines. They still had, you know, a bunch, a bunch of holdovers from the early 80s teams. And a couple, you know, of course, Andre Dawson was still there. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience in Montreal for those couple seasons? Well, 
they were very good teams, as you say. Uh, very different playing in Montreal because, as most people know, it's a, it's a hockey city, and uh, you know we would have 50,000 there for the opening night. The next night we might have 6,000. Uh, you know, so the support, the fan support, wasn't great, but uh, the city we certainly enjoyed playing there. Uh, really good talent, and yet, Tim, like you said, Tim Lane's Andre Dawson, uh, Tim Wall, and Andres Belarragas, very good players, and uh, uh, Hubie Brooks was a guy who came, came to the Expos the same year that I did when they had a big brother trade from New York. And, uh, you know, one of the years, 87, I believe it was 86, 87, we, all we need was another, uh, I felt like all we need was another starting pitcher to give us a chance to win the division and move forward and uh, into the playoffs. And unfortunately, we weren't able to go out and get somebody that was, uh, you know, an established starter that was really going to help us. So, that, you know, we were disappointed as a team that we didn't make the effort to do that. But uh, we were very competitive and we were in the race with St. Louis down the stretch with St. Louis and with, uh, with the Mets. Um, so we had given ourselves a pretty good chance to, to, uh, to win the division and go into playoffs, but unfortunately we weren't able to get over the hump. Yeah, now, Kyrie, once again, John Kelly here with Vance Law. Now, after, of course, the 1987 season, you go over to the Cubs, and, you know, Andre Dawson's on the team, you know, a guy that you're very familiar with. And, you know, for really, the Cubs in 1988 had a pretty solid team. You know, you were one of six All-Stars that year, and it turns out to be one of your best seasons. You know, let's talk a little bit about the 1988 Cubs, which obviously segues into the 1989 season when the Cubs end up winning the division. during the collusion years and there were that's really how Andre ended up getting over there too. Yes, it is. He, uh, uh, you know, they, there was not a whole lot of free agency movement going on and Andre actually signed a contract without a number in there and said you pay me what you think I'm worth and because he, he knew that he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't gonna be able to go where he wanted to the value that uh, other former free agents had done it previously, so he ended up going there. I was in, in a similar situation. I was never offered a, a contract from any other club uh, and was actually uh, uh, the contract that I was offered. They declined my option in 87, uh, after the 87 season, and offered me a 40% cut. And I had a good year in 87, and so I said, no, I'm going to try the free agent market and they said go right ahead. Nobody uh, nobody came knocking with a higher offer than what the Expos had. So it was obvious that something was going on and uh, anyway I got to the Cubs and I uh, eighty eight was a great year for me, uh, individually and uh, you know, like you said we had six guys on the Cubs make the all star team with Palmero and Dawson and Sandberg, myself, Sean Dawson, I think was pragmatics also. Uh, really a very, very good team. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of experience as starters on the uh, mound other than Rick Sutcliffe and Greg Maddox. And uh, Scott Sanderson also was a very good year. Uh, but we had, some, we had some real young players that were coming along and, uh, you know, as you well know, it doesn't matter what kind of years offensively uh, position players have, you've got to have somebody that's going to 
we get a chance to win every game on the mound, and that's where the games are won and lost. And our, our young players were in a developmental stage other than Seclus, Sanders, and Maddox. And, um, you know, which segues into 89, and that extra experience that those pitchers gained in 88 uh, really helped us in 89. We uh, still had developed, those pitchers had developed, and gave us a chance to win every ball game. But 88 was really a fun year for me individually. I uh, was able to come through an awful lot with, uh, with two strike RBIs, two out RBIs, uh, and uh, really one of the great years that I had. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, you hit on something good. I mean, you see a lot of teams that have that year where, listen, they may not make the playoffs and they fall a little bit short. But coming off that season, I'm sure you really felt like you had, you had built up a lot of momentum as a team. And, you know, with the, with the fact that some of the younger players were developed and probably made a lot of people within the Chicago area and within the Cubs confident that 1989 was going to be a pretty special season. I think that's right. I think that uh, as those players progressed through 88, that experience and uh, what it took uh, really made us be the club that we, uh, we became in 1989. And uh, although that wasn't a great year for me, personally, it was sure a fun year to be part of. Because uh, there's nothing like being on a winning team in Chicago, whether it's with the White Sox or with the Cubs. There's, uh, they, uh, they love their baseball, they love their sports, and uh, it's, uh, it's a great city to play in. Yeah, no question. John Pielli here with Vance Law. Now, after the 1989 season, of course, you, know, you end up in the playoffs there. You lose a tough series to the San Francisco Giants. And, you know, the Cubs obviously still have that mantra, you know, the, the bad luck, which has not allowed them to get to a World Series since 1945. Was, was there any of that riding on anybody's head in regards to the clubhouse as you guys were in the NLCS that season? No. We really felt like we were going to win the whole thing, you know. But so you know, it was. We didn't look at it as uh, you know that Cubs curse. We always just looked at it as you know we weren't part of that ball club or anything like that. This is the time to make that change. I'm guessing it's similar to what Boston went through when they finally broke through. You know, they weren't part of their their past. This was a new group of players, and that's the way we looked at it too. But, uh, this was our year, and we were going to do it. Um, unfortunately, we ran into a really hot San Francisco Giants club that absolutely played great. Uh, very strong pitching staff, and, uh, and uh, you know, that playoff was kind of highlighted, I think, by Mark Grace and Will Clark. Those guys just uh, were on fire, both of them. I mean, uh, you know, it was a it was a fun series to play in, but uh, you know, we just didn't play real well. No, it ends up happening, and you know, after the 1989 season, you, know, you mentioned collusion earlier. Was collusion still um, at at a big point in baseball, where owners were colluding against players after the 1989 season, or had that kind of subsided a little bit? I, I think it is it is pretty well subsided at that point, and they were in the process of trying to figure out what kind of penalties and how they were going to try and repair the damages that had been done to players, because players obviously careers are pretty short, and if you miss out on a year or two of playing uh, or being paid for that, your career could be over before you know it, and you never really had a chance to take advantage of uh, uh, opportunities that other players had.
season you'd end up uh, going over to Japan playing for the Chinichi team. Tell us a little bit about what, you know, you know, how, how this came about. Was it something that you had aspired to do or was this just the best opportunity for you? Well, at the end of the 89 season I was uh, Jim Fry, the general manager for the Cubs, uh, suggested that I start thinking about going to Japan and I said I was an all-star last year. I'm not ready um, that's for players who are at the end of their career. And I wasn't prepared to go over to Japan at that point. That wasn't something that I uh, had aspired to at all. I wanted to stay in the major leagues. And um, you know, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why don't you just trade me? And he said, there's no interest. And I said, I don't believe that. I, I believe that there's somebody out there that will take me. And he said, uh, oh, we just, you just don't fit into our plans. And I said, well, then release me. And let me make my own deal. And he said, no, we're not in the habit of releasing players, you know, just because they want to be released. I said, well, then, if I don't fit into your plans, what good am I to you? And he said, I just think you should think about going to Japan. Well, when I, when uh, contract stuff came around, uh, there was the threat of the lockout that following spring. And I knew I didn't want to get into spring training without a, some kind of guarantee that I was going to make a club. And so uh, my wife and I sat down and started thinking about it, thinking, you know, they could release me the last week of spring training, and I wouldn't, you know, clubs would be set, and I may not have a job. And so uh, in the meantime, Japan called, and my agent talked with them, and he said, you know, this is what they're offering. You have a chance to go and make a fair amount of money by going over there. So we decided that we'd take the chance, and we ended up going to making that decision to go to Japan and that's kind of how it came about and boy was that a that was a different style of baseball I left uh, about five days after our fourth child was born and uh, went over to Okinawa where we had about two months of spring training and boy they just everything is just work 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 and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of fun involved like we have over here um, you know if they were eight, nine-hour practices, and uh, after practice, sometimes we would even run to, we'd have to run back to the hotel, and which was five miles away. So I mean, it was really a, it was a really rigorous uh, baseball style that they played over there. Um, yeah, so it, it was a, it was a challenge, but I, uh, and I really struggled in spring training because I was trying to get used to a new style of baseball. They didn't throw me.
I'm sure they probably wondered who's this guy that we signed and is heading 190 for the spring training. But I, got, I finally got it figured out that I was going to start looking for breaking balls. And I think it really helped me become a better breaking ball hitter by the year that I spent over there because I had to sit on off-speed stuff during that time. Yeah, no question. And you end up, you know, putting up some very good numbers. You hit over 300. You almost hit 30 home runs. It looks like you finally ended up getting it together. Now, after you're done, after you're done playing, you know, you end up uh, getting getting associated back with your alma mater at BYU. You now, tell us a little bit about what what led up to that and your experience getting the chance to uh, be the head coach there for 13 years. Well, when I when I finished my playing years, I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't want to just, you know, just retire and play golf for the rest of my life. So I, I volunteered to help at a junior college coach, and I found that I was pretty good at helping young hitters and uh, being able to help those guys develop. And then when the job came available, well, I actually went to, uh, after the junior college year, I went and coached five years at the high school here, and, and uh, then the job at BYU opened up, and... Uh, I applied and was hired, and uh, we had a few successful years there. It was a lot of fun and enjoyed uh, the opportunity to work with great young men. And, uh, you know, but there, the NCAA has such a handle and such a, uh, a powerful fist held over all of college sports. It really, it, it, you really don't have a chance to help kids develop the way that they want to because of the time constraints. Uh, and and uh, the amount of time you're allowed to spend with the athletes determined by the NCAA. And unfortunately, you have guys that are making the rules in the NCAA that don't have uh, a whole lot of experience in baseball uh, or in a lot of the sports. You've got guys that are, you know, people that sit behind the desk making, making the decisions and the rules for people who are out there trying to help these young players become better. That's what they wanted to do, and I understand the fact that they wanted to be in class. And, but uh, they tell me that you can only work with kids for two hours a week during the off, you know, it's not during your championship season. Those guys don't want to just work for two hours. They want to get better. They want to spend as much time with their coach as possible. But uh, really a great experience at BYU. I had, a, had uh, the opportunity to coach some real good players and uh, – yeah, no question. Now, back on your major league career, I was going to finish it with one last question. You know, you got a chance to play, obviously, for a handful of teams for you know over over a decade. What what would you consider your greatest moment in major league baseball? Uh, individually, I would say uh, making the All Star team in 1988. That was. You know, to get that phone call from, uh, uh, from our general manager saying that I was, had been chosen to, uh, represent the National League as a major league all-star was really, uh, probably the, the, the high point of my career. You know, individually, it was, you know, you always dream to get, getting your first major league hit, your first major league home run, and, um, I was able to, I, I hit a, a few game-winning home runs in, uh, you know, in the ninth inning, uh, one was a brain slam against the Pirates that uh, had kind of given up on me. So it was fun to be able to come back and against teams that uh, had kind of given up on him, play against them and do well. But I would say that my highlight was uh, being named to the All-Star team. 
Yeah, listen, man, it looks like you had a pretty good career, man. It looks like you enjoyed your time. Uh, you know, so I want to thank you for having some time today, man. So I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Uh, no problem at all, John. Thank you very much. And it, it was, it was a great, it was a great time. I can't believe how quickly uh, that time passed. Too. Amazing. Yeah, no question. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot with Vance Law and you got in a lot of different things. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the talk about his father and about playing, you know, 10 years in the major leagues and going over to Japan and baseball collusion, the whole thing. But I'm going to finish off this hour by talking about some less talked about free agent pitchers out there. And we, and we could start out by talking about a guy like Bronson Arroyo, who hasn't gotten enough attention, certainly is demanding a three-year contract, which has kind of held him back a little bit. But there's other pitchers out there that are interesting to talk about because A.J. Burnett is a guy who's contemplated retirement, and the Orioles have been linked to him. And, you know, more than likely he's going to come back and pitch for somebody this year. But, you know, you, you don't really know where it's going to be. Another guy, you know, former Atlanta pitcher Tom Hansen, you know, ended up with the Angels last year, did a terrible job, ends up being non-tendered, could certainly have a lot of value for, you know, certain teams. But, you know, there's also guys like James McDonald of the Pittsburgh Pirates, who for a couple of years was a very stable number three starting pitcher. Struggled last year, got hurt a little bit, ends up a free agent now. Could obviously provide some value at the back end of the rotation. And another guy in Tampa Bay, Jeff Neiman, a right-hand pitcher who was expected to be the number five starter, was the number five starter in the 2012 season, and then ended up see, watching them push Wayne Davis into the bullpen, where he ended up being a reliever for a little bit. But here's a guy coming off of Tommy John surgery, and you know could certainly provide some value towards the back end of any team's rotation. And these are guys that are going to get some uh, attention, but just not right away. Obviously, we know the Tanaka situation has to deal itself out, and then you got Garza and Jimenez and. Irvin Santana, and uh, obviously most of the pitchers, if not all of them, you know, the guys that we, I just mentioned are all looking probably for more money than and more years than teams are willing to give up, but are certainly all assets. Let's be honest. I mean, any team that adds a Matt Garza or an Irvin Santana or a Ubaldo Jimenez to their staff is getting a guy who could be in a top two or three, and certainly more of a two, maybe in some instances being a one on certain teams' starting rotations. You think of the Houston Astros, teams like that, that certainly don't have a number one, and obviously I wouldn't expect them to make an investment like that. But, you know, after that, there are other options, and we're going to see Tanaka go first, and then we're going to see the other top guys that I just mentioned. But, you know, if a team ends up with Tommy Hansen as their fifth starter, it's not a bad deal. And Tommy Hansen certainly has a lot to prove. He's young. He was very highly touted by the Braves. He was the opening day starter, for crying out loud, in the 2012 season. I was at the game. You know, Mets against the Braves. And, you know, here's a guy that certainly has top of the rotation stuff. He would be a guy that I would take a chance on. And obviously Burnett and McDonald and Neiman are, are all guys to look into as we go through this free agent process. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to Vance Law for being part of the first hour. We'll be back with a whole nother hour. Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network.